Welcome back, Tube Nation. I hope oh, you're pumped up for another God. episode. Keeping you juiced since 2019. Now get ready to jam out with your clam out. Who are you and what have you done with Shannon? <laughs> you don't like the new intro? You sounded like you're from the 80s. I was going for 90s DJ. I said jam out with your clam out. <laughs> I know you did. <laughs> I don't know if that was my least or favorite part i didn't like that you didn't like it at all pull it out for special occasions you're listening to inside the aluminum tube this podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents often resulting in death if you're scared to fly proceed with caution sir are your pants meowing yeah you interested pull up no the plane is about to crash wind shear you're looking a little anxious kent (laughs) yeah increase climb only if you really need me to threw his clothes off had an accident got his tree and went night night 50 40 oh so like some dumb bro shit okay cool 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 cool. 30 20 i'm sorry i'm a little overwhelmed by what you just said 10 hence being poked in the rear uh as a man in the middle of the aisle climb now. Given the context, this does not sound like a good plan. Clear of conflict. So this is an aviation history podcast which looks at events in aviation history like air disasters, accidents, incidents, and other mishaps from the days of yore right up to today. Yes, I'm familiar with And I'd like to ask my listeners who love this podcast or even just like the podcast to tell two friends because if they tell two friends, then they can tell two friends. Every person I've recommended it to has enjoyed it. And not to be biased but i always lately have been recommending episode 20 and they love it even though it's one of your longest episodes it is one of the longer ones but tell a couple friends because that's how podcasts grow also leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts so i'm going to shorten the intro today by the time you've gotten to this episode you already know that i'm shannon baker i'm the creator and you can go to episode zero you can listen to me brag about myself there if you want to see the things we talk about Go to the Instagrams and the Twitter machine, both at Aluminum Tube. You can also email me at AluminumTubePodcast at gmail.com. I don't think I realized you had a Twitter. I don't have a Twitter. Okay, I so maybe not the Twitter machine. Because in fairness, I pretty much use the Twitter to troll Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, which are those crazy Congress people. I might have to get Twitter for that. And I troll the hell out of them on there. That's why I use Twitter. Funny. I, I I post some aviation stuff, but very little. And but you can still follow me on Twitter. I mean, at least I'm I'm funny. Do you post the pictures of the episodes there, or is that just Instagram? I normally post a story on Twitter, but I, I just kind of copy the t- story over. I'm Got not it. like Twitter-centric. I, I just use Twitter for a little it's bit of kind exposure. of a flaming trash can. It really is. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like really ADD. It's hard for me to get into Twitter. Yeah, same. Instagram is much slower. It's pretty. Anyway, I have a co-host who you may recognize by now, but she's already interrupted me several times, so she's spoiled the uh, the intro. Of course, it's Mary Hall. Hello. And Mary, you didn't tell me I couldn't talk. No, I didn't. But I wanted to tell you that you are now the most prolific co-host on Inside the Aluminum Tube. Woo! So how about that? I love it because it's honestly one of my favorite things to do outside of my personal hobbies. Every time you ask me to record, I get excited. So thank you for having me back. I haven't recorded with you since before your summer break. I want to tell my listeners that I forgot about my aluminum tube email. Interesting. Because you <sighs> mention it 
in every episode, but you have a script. I'm privy to that knowledge sitting across from you. So is it kind of just something you copy and paste every time, but you haven't really been thinking about it? That is correct. Okay. I And what made you think about it today? Well, I was going to sign up for a Patreon. Okay. I will get a Patreon eventually, but right now I didn't sign up for the Patreon or I haven't. I'm in the process, but then I will was like, oh, I'm going to sign up for it. And it said, you already have it. And so I went to mm. log on to my aluminum tube podcast at gmail.com email. And I had a whole bunch of emails back from like August, like 60 emails or 70 emails wow. or something. And most of them were junk, but there were some users, some people that wanted to interact and stuff. And I've responded to those. So if you're one of those people, I'm sorry. I did get to you though. Just took a while. I've been busy. You moved. Yep. You... uh had a lot going on. You've told your audience that you're going to be a captain, right? Yeah, a captain on the Airbus, but I didn't so tell my audience that I've been accepted on. to grad school. Yes, congratulations. So I'm going to go to grad school for um, human factors, which S- is basically what we talk about on here. Right. It, this is a human factors podcast. The email was not at the forefront of your brain, but I do think that you'll make it a priority now. That's so exciting that you have so much audience interaction. Oh, yeah. And I also looked at my podcast stats and Apparently, the country that listens to me most is Ireland. So I'd like to give a shout out to my Irish peeps out there listening to me. I, I appreciate do an it accent so much. <laughs> if I were you, I can't do an act an Irish accent at all. I'd love to have. I'm a, I, I'd Irish. love to have an Irish co-host. So I will come to Ireland to record an episode in Ireland. So if, and if anyone's ever in New York City, I mean, you're very near there, and you can get there. Right, I'm That's near where New we're York. Recording right. now. We're recording now in New York, and I will come to New York. I will also come to Ireland. It is not that far for me. I can do it for free and I can get to Shannon or Dublin very easily. So if you are one of my Irish listeners and I appreciate you so much, yeah, just reach out to me and we'll co-host together. And then the United States after that and then Japan after that and then India, which kind of surprised me. Yeah. But the really surprising one was the number five listeners was from Latvia. Interesting. I think most of those are interesting because I guess for some reason I thought America would be at the top. And Ireland isn't a huge country, no, not anywhere smaller. near I... the size of India. And they're your number one audience, which is so interesting to I me. I kind of had expected to see Canada on that list, you mm-hmm. know, because we're so close to the Canadians. And But I guess not. But anyway, yeah. Shout out to Ireland. Woo. And I've never been to Latvia, so if somebody's in Latvia and uh, wants to co-host with me, reach out. I don't even know how to get to Latvia, but I can manage it. Figure it out. Yeah, I'll figure it out. That's so That's so interesting that you're able to actually see where your audience is from, because I know you're also interested in hopefully getting some sort of advertisement for this so that you can put more time and effort into it, like reading your email on a regular basis and replying. Knowing your audience is a great thing when you're trying to find advertisers. We kind of avoid ads on television and we avoid Absolutely. ads. But we hear them in our podcasts and I have appreciated some of the ads that I've heard in podcasts. Oh, I don't yeah. always appreciate it, but sometimes I really appreciate it. Headphones that are my new favorite headphones. I heard like five different podcasts advertising for them. The really Absolutely. viable platform. So the last time we recorded, Mary, we were in Hawaii. Yes. And so that's been a little while. It was episode 20, like you said. I think May, right? 
May, correct. So tell me what's been going on. I, I normally take a break over the summer, which I did this year as well. So um, tell me what's been going on. Is there any update in your life since then? I have been working as a tailor on a horror film. And I'm hoping to be a tailor again when I come back after the winter break. I got my booster. So that's super exciting. I did the same thing. Congrats. My little guy, my eight-year-old is now fully vaccinated Woo! as well. So I'm excited. The whole house about, is protected. The whole house is protected and we're ready to knock out this COVID thing and move on Hell with our yeah. lives. So. I actually am going home for Christmas this year, which is going to be That's a interesting. Little <laughs> stressful, a little stressful. It can be a little scary, a little stressful. Yeah. That's why you need talk space. I'm just kidding. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I love, I love a perfect segue. Actually, when I was... Being a tailor, you kind of like sit in a space by yourself and you're working and you're pretty quiet. And I listened to a lot of your episodes. So I had your voice and the co-host voice in my head when I was working sometimes, which was really fun and helped the day go by. Yeah. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. And also thanks for being on. I, I always appreciate it. And I think I had like four people on that job start listening to this sh- I love podcast. That. I love that. Like I said, tell two friends, right? Because mm-hmm. then they can tell two friends. And pretty soon it can be global. Global. It global. is global. It, it already is. is global. We already knew that. All right. So are you ready for the story today? I am so ready. So I've written this story because this is a wintertime story. It is December. We'll get to the date. Let's start talk about the airplane. I'm just following your lead here. Take me on the journey. Okay, so the airplane. So I talked about this airplane back in episode, I think, 17. It's called Sky King. Okay, um, with Cindy? With Cindy, yes. She was a great co-host. So let's talk about the airplane. The Bombardier-8Q400. And remember that you can find a pic of the Dash 8 on my Instagram. It'll be in the regular posts and in the story highlights. Have a photo for you. Yay. I love pictures. It has propellers. It's a turboprop. Oh, I thought it was United, but it's Continental. It's Continental Airlines. Yeah. Because United, when United merged with Continental, they took parts of what's called the livery, which is how the airplane is painted. Right. So they took parts of the livery. And then it is the cabin area is very long and it has two propellers. And high Which wings. Which is odd to me. It's a little different than what you're used to seeing. I've never really seen a plane like this outside of the episode you did with Cindy. Looks pretty modern. It is very modern. So I'll, let Which me tell Which is weird with the propellers. Right. So let me tell you about it. So the Dash 8 Q400 is a turboprop that seats 76 people. So it's large. Oh, okay. It's like something you take two hours to yeah, like to, you could go from New York to Atlanta or something. It actually has the same cross section size as an airliner, so like a seven thirty seven. Okay. So it's quite comfortable and large yeah. and comfortable inside. They're not very loud. Most people associate turboprops with like being loud, but it's called a Q four hundred, and the Q stands for quiet. I love that. It's very uh, logical. Uses a jet engine to turn the propeller. We've talked about turboprops in the past, and they use a small jet engine to turn the big propeller. Mm-hmm. It has wings on the top of the tube. And they're mounted to each wing. We have one on each wing. And the Dash 8 was originally built by de Havilland Canada and introduced in 1984. It kind of looks like you took a bunch of pieces from other planes and stuck them all together. Definitely did not do that. This was a clean sheet designed by de Havilland way back in 1984. De Havilland Canada was bought by Boeing in 1988, then by Bombardier in 1992. The Dash Why 8- did Boeing not want it anymore? I don't know why they buy and sell things. 
It's just weird. The Dash 8 Q400 was introduced in the year 2000, and like I said, the Q stands for quiet. It's the newest model of the Dash 8 series. It's very fast. It's pressurized. It's very quiet. They cost around $25 million each. The Dash Damn. 8's... The Dash 8 series is the most popular turboprop ever built in the world. There are roughly 1,500 of them. So it's well known. It's very modern. That's the airplane. So it's popular, but it's not like... You don't see it everywhere. These are still used by a company called Porter, which goes in and out of Newark Airport and the Northeast. They actually go to Canada. So Porter is a Canadian company. It was built by de Havilland Canada, which was a Canadian company. Bombardier was also a Canadian company. So this is basic, basically a Old Canadian airplane. Canada. Do you know the rest or just no. that? Yeah, I don't know the rest. <laughs> but either. I did pretty good on that part, didn't I? Yeah, I liked it. Thank you. But let's talk about the company now. The company is a company called Colgan Air. Okay. Colgan Air was an American regional airline that was founded by Charles Colgan in Manassas, Virginia in 1965. Colgan is not in existence anymore. We're about to find out uh, what happened to Colgan. Colgan began scheduled service under a contract with IBM Mm -hmm. just to move its employees around back in 1970. Over the years, Colgan operated as a regional carrier for a whole bunch of different airlines. And at one point, they even changed their name. Then they changed it back. (laughs) What was their name in the middle? I, I didn't write that down. Well, why not? It was like, why did you change your name? Because it, it lasted like two years and they changed it back. And I just Weird. went, okay. But they always operated turboprops. They never operated jets. Turboprops are more for regional use anyway, right? Definitely. And the advantage of a turboprop is they can carry a lot of weight. Right. They're very fuel efficient. Okay. They are easier to fly, but the okay. downside is they go slower. Which is why you wouldn't take a turboprop, even though it was more fuel efficient, say to like New Zealand. Yeah, because you wouldn't it would fly like across the world. Thirty it would hours take a long instead of twenty. Time. Right, it would take so long. Right, regionally. I've been on a Dash Eight for maybe more than two hours or something, but not much more than that. But if it's so. quiet and if it's um, pressurized, it would be very comfortable. Super easy comfortable. Right. Yeah, exactly. They were all. They always operated turboprops, and like I said, they were a feeder airline always under contract with a larger airline. So they were never like selling their own tickets. Does that make sense? It does. Then in 2007, they were purchased by another larger regional airline called Pinnacle Airlines. So they're still having all these other contracts with all these other people, but now this big company bought them them and gets part of their profits and gets to control them a little bit and use them. Yep. Okay. At the time they were, at that time they were headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee, just for some perspective. By the time... This event happened. Colgan Air operated flights for just two companies, Continental Express and U.S. Airways Express. So they operated only for Continental Airlines and U.S. Airways. That was it. Okay. Obviously, Continental was merged with United and U.S. Airways was merged with American. So times have changed and almost no companies that we're going to talk about today really exist anymore. This wasn't even that long ago. No. Pinnacle Airlines phased out the Colgan name in mid-2012. Pinnacle sounds cooler. It does. Isn't that also a vodka? I don't I know. I think it is. I know that we covered Pinnacle Airlines in episode six. It was with Olivia. Oh, okay. It's called a Pepsi to celebrate. Ah, uh, Yes. Pinnacle Airlines phased out the Colgan name in 2012. They transferred personnel and logistics to Pinnacle Airlines. Later in 2012, Pinnacle Airlines Corporation filed for Chapter 11. They emerged. Bankruptcy, right? Yeah. 
Then they emerged from Chapter 11 because they became a wholly owned subsidiary of Delta Airlines. So Delta bought them. They went into bankruptcy. bankruptcy. Delta bought mm. them. The name of Pinnacle was dropped. It was changed to Endeavor Air in 2013. Endeavor is still a company. I've flown a regional airline and the employees are employed by those regional airlines, yeah. even though you buy a ticket on like United, for example. Yeah. Are they employees are becoming a part of the bigger employee base of the larger companies or is it keeping you would, it separate? You would love to think that, but the truth is no, they actually are kept separate. Well, it makes a lot of sense in business because I know those regional airlines less. make less. Exactly. Yeah, you can pay them less. And they're sometimes in like different unions or whatever. And that hmm. hurts the employees, but helps the larger company who bought right, it. Because and in this case, Delta Airlines Group. And it probably helps the higher ups in the smaller business because they're getting a lot, of, probably a big pay cut from. I mean, it could go one way or the other, right? So it could help the higher ups because they maybe get get a. Uh, a raise or they could might get rid of them oh because they're not very needed. Good they're point. not needed or they're redundant right because they already have a ceo and a yeah president and but let's talk so we've already started to talk about regional airlines let's talk about them a little more i haven't set a date yet yet but the I kind year, of get what uh era we're in though yeah the year is 2010 at mm. this at this time in 2010 Colgan, i just got my driver's license <laughs> <laughs> Woo! At this time, Colgan was considered a bottom feeder. The reality is they were always a bottom feeder among bottom feeders. Oh. <laughs> they were like the worst of the worst for a long time. That's probably why they tried to rebrand. Colgan made tiny profits on bare bones contracts with larger airlines. And this is something that we have to talk about. They relied on government handouts because they were considered an EAS carrier. What does that stand for? EAS stands for Essential Air Service. It's intended to maintain a minimum level of scheduled air service to small and remote communities. Interesting. So these communities under normal circumstances would be abandoned by airlines because they can't make money in those places. Right. Because maybe you're just going to have a couple people fly in and out. I had to go through an airline like that once, like the second time I ever flew. We needed to connect through. But there was still an through. airport, Exactly. Right? Yeah, and that's the point. So for instance, if you live in Iron Mountain, Michigan, mm -hmm. it's a really small town up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, the criteria is you're more than 200 miles from a medium or large airport. So you fly out of your How local would airport. would it take to drive 200 miles? At least three hours. Okay. Probably in these places, we're talking... Three plus, probably around four. So if you lived in northern Maine, if you lived in places in Alabama, places in northwestern I think New mine, Mexico, mm -hmm. I th think there's not much there. Mm -hmm. I think the one I went through was, I mean, I was on my way to Nebraska. Right. So there are lots of these places within the EAS system, and you can find it online. Um, That's exactly so what's EAS. So you go to your local airport, and your flight is going to be subsidized by the government. Because hmm. there's only going to be a handful of people on that flight. But it's important to keep that community connected to the rest of the United States. And not making the flights insanely expensive. Right. I mean, you said they were subsidized. And if they weren't subsidized, to have to make it worth it, they would have, have to, to charge, charge so much. A grand, right. probably. And then or more. nobody's going to utilize that. And then they only might have like two flights a week instead of a flight a day. But there's, a, there's an issue with the EAS carriers. Essential air service carriers are renowned 
for shit pay and shit benefits because right. they are bare bones. They're just being subsidized to the point where, well, they pay such shit and they have such low benefits to the point where they they can only really attract either pilots who barely meet the minimum hour requirement. So they're really young pilots right? trying to get start. And those pilots, as soon as they gain experience, Leave. they're going to quit. Yeah. Yeah. So or, it's a constant revolving door of employees. Or they attract a pilot with dodgy training records, DUIs, or oh, other gosh. issues. Okay. You're really setting this story up. The pay is often so bad that the pilots have second jobs. Most are eligible for food stamps. Wow. This is not the world are they of unionized? pilots. Sometimes. Okay. Not normally. Okay. But this is not the world of pilots that you've been exposed to. No. No. Not at all. My first jet job in 2004 paid just $24,000 a year. Right. And my benefits consumed almost a quarter of that. And I got two scheduled days off a month. This That's... is this is the reality of being a new pilot or working for an EAS carrier or a shit carrier. It seems to be a similar theme in a lot of industries. Definitely. Unfortunately. Definitely. It's those it's those ads that say have a master's degree, must have three years of experience, right. starting pay, you know, twelve dollars and fifteen cents an hour. Ridiculous. Then these people have to get second jobs when they really should be resting, resting. so that they can be yeah. safe at their first job. Right. I could go in and talk oh, we about could this talk topic about for this an for hour. A long time. I agree. We're ready to get to the date. Do you have yeah. any questions about Colgan? Do you have any questions about the Dash 8 or essential air service carriers? No, I think you explained everything really well. Okay. So now you're ready for the date? Yes. February 12th, 2009. 2009. Just I'm just getting my brain into that headspace. I'm like that was the year before you got your driver's license yep avril lavigne that's right um okay so what was going on in um like the world in 2009 that was so obama was president yes okay we were recovering from the Great Recession, which happened right, in 2008. Right, that just happened. Okay. We're sort of um, on the upswing from that. So Bitcoin wasn't invented but yet. In that didn't happen for another two years. Did the Great Crash affect these Oh, programs? in 2008. Mm -hmm. There were lots of pilots that hit the street. They lost their jobs. They got furloughed. Pay but didn't would go that up. Happen, Pay probably went down as a result. Would that, that happen with the ones that are subsidized by the government? Yes. Okay. Still would, okay, you yep. can cut this part out. I was just trying to get my head in the nope, that's okay. zone of where the story is. So, Fe so February 12th, 2009. Yes. The 24-year-old female first officer had been flying the Dash 8 since the previous April. 24. She's 24. And she had just a little hmm. more than 2,200 hours of total flight time. <gasps> that's, that's really not like very not much. not much at all. <laughs> she was a really good pilot, though. Okay. She had previously lived in North... You're, you're having reactions and it's just going to keep coming. I, you grow so much in that time. She had previously lived in Norfolk, Virginia, but she'd recently relocated to Seattle, Washington to be closer to her family. Okay. Where she and her husband lived with her parents. I wonder why she lived with her parents. Probably because she wasn't making enough money. She made $15,800 in the entire year of 2008. I know what that kind of income is like and it sucks here's the worst part she was living in seattle washington with her parents and she's newark based <gasps> no 
she had told a few pilots that the commute from Seattle to Newark was easier than the commute from Norfolk to Newark. Why? I can explain that. Trying to commute from Norfolk means that you're going to have to compete with a lot of mainline pilots mm-hmm. to get to Newark on small airplanes. So on right. a regional jet. And, and she you, can't buy tickets. And you may com- have to connect through Dulles mm-hmm. and she can't afford tickets. When you're going to fly from Seattle to Newark, you have a lot of options. You can fly on FedEx. You can get on a UPS. You can get on a wide body, which typically is going to have a couple seats mm-hmm. versus a 50-seat airplane, which has none. So I, right. so I understand it is a longer commute, but it is easier. When I no, just... was based in San Francisco and lived in Savannah, the commute was easier for me mm-hmm. to get to San Francisco than it was to get to Newark. That flight from Savannah to New York is always full. Always. And it's full. a regional flight like we're talking about. Yeah, and I used to get bumped small. all the time because... Mm-hmm. Of- right, because it was a 200 and something dollar ticket and what you were going to go make, like that's a third of what you were about to go make or something. Right, exactly. I understand what she's talking about, but that doesn't make it a shorter commute. Is that like four hours on the plane? Well, we're going to see. Okay. So she got up at a normal time the day prior on February 11th, and her epic commute began. She showed up at the Seattle airport at 5.30 p.m. She got on a FedEx flight that day, leaving at 7.30 p.m., but going to Memphis, Okay. where FedEx sort facility is. She landed in Memphis at 12.30 Memphis time. She sat through the unloading and the loading, which they call the sort. She left Memphis at 4.30 a.m. and landed in Newark at 6.30 a.m. She planned- Wow. Yeah. So essentially 13-hour commute. So far, she planned to sleep in the pilot lounge until her flight that night. Okay. She Would did you- not have a crash pad. She did uh-huh. not get a hotel room. Because again, she money. couldn't afford a crash pad or a hotel room. Her flight was scheduled to leave Newark at around 7 p.m. So you can imagine that her check-in time would be about 6 p.m. Right. And she'd probably want to like get up and eat something. But she's in the airport and she's just hanging out in the air in the Newark airport from 6:30 a.m. until her check-in time at 6 p.m. So 12 more hours. She's just in the airport. So she left basically 24 hours before she had to work. And this whole time, she's not getting paid. Correct. She was going to leave Newark and fly to Buffalo, New York, that night. That flight ended up on a two-hour delay. Fun. So Colgan 3407 departs that night at 9.18 p.m., more than 24 hours after she had started her commute. She has not slept in a proper bed. No red flags. See, that's... You see not any, great you see any problems there mary just maybe like like a baby red flag like a just little, like a little, little just, just on a, a toothpick yeah so but let's talk about the captain because he's the other part of this the 47 year old captain was a florida commuter he lived near tampa and he, he was also newark based and you know what his age tells me before what? we even get into this oh because we talked about eas carriers right <laughs> that he is not a good guy <laughs> He stayed with a friend while in Newark to avoid having to pay for a crash pad because he only made $60,000 a year as a captain. He had wow. he had a wife I mean, and kids at 60, home. 60,000 is significantly better than what the FA was making. Yeah, cuz he FO, the, the FO yeah, she made 15 like 16,000. So he's making a lot more, but Like he can afford a place to live. Yes, he afo- he can afford a place to live in Florida, but right, he stays with a with friend in New York. When I was doing research, I found rumors that he worked at a grocery store part-time as a second job, but I looked around and I looked around and I didn't find any evidence of this, so okay. I'm going to call bullshit on that. Okay. So, that's for the listeners who are maybe familiar with the story and they're going to say, "Oh, well, he worked as a bag 
bagging groceries or something like that. That that's that's not true. We found no viable. Yeah, no viable. There's no source. viable source. But let's talk more about the captain. The captain was late to come to aviation, and he'd only been a professional pilot since 2004. So we're only talking about five years. He was trained by a company that's no longer in existence. Thank God. That was company. Let me tell you this. It was a pay for work training program slash airline. So, you know, when you get a job, they pay you to work. Yes. Imagine if you got a job where you had to pay them to work. I'm upset already. That was a company called Gulfstream Airlines. Now, it gets Don't worse than that. Don't they still exist? No, you're thinking of Gulfstream, the manufacturer. Gulfstream Airlines was an airline in Florida. Oh. They've since Related in any reason or did no, they just take the name? It's just the name. Okay. You're familiar with a work for pay program. That's every yeah. job, right? Yeah. Well, th- in this job, he had to pay them to work for them as a first officer. To get his hours or whatever. Yeah. So in this case, they pay the captain money, but the first officer pays the company. They're also an EAS carrier, and they're an academy, in air quotes. I'm just shaking my head. A training program. (sighs) I'm so such bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. So the captain on Colgan 3407 had just over 3,300 hours. Again, it's not very much. Mm-hmm. Total flight time. Of that, he's only flown the Dash 8 for 111 hours total. Not very much. Not very much. But he had been a captain prior to that on a large turboprop called the Saab 340. He'd been a captain on that for around 1,000 hours. So he's not wholly inexperienced, but he doesn't have that much experience. Okay. He did not commute on February 12th of 2009. He was already in Newark because he had a trip that ended on the previous day and he was starting the new trip on the 12th. So he did not commute. So that's the crew. It's a little about their lives and their challenges. What are your thoughts? You kind of interjected about the captain being 47. He's a little older. And then the first officer, she's 24. She's young. They're both relatively inexperienced. Right. He's not necessarily a bad guy because he wasn't like an uh, employee on another airline company and then had to go to this, like you were saying, that some of them did. He, right. It sounds like he made a later in life career change choice. And this is what he can do right now. Like yeah. he still he doesn't have enough hours for maybe like to get a on job a on American or, or something. Right. So let's talk about the events. You look nervous. I am nervous. I already don't like the way these employees are being treated or what they've been forced into make their employment work. And I don't think, especially, I'm not so concerned about the captain. I'm more concerned about the first officer who hasn't slept in a normal bed in 24 hours. And by the time the departure happens, it's more like 30. Which is crazy. And I've experienced myself after not sleeping that long. And you can be nauseous. You can see like floaters in your eyes. Oh, yeah. It is not a healthy brain space to be performing. No, I didn't say she didn't sleep the whole time. I said she didn't sleep in a bed, right? So she could have slept on the FedEx flight. She could have slept during the sort and she could have slept in the chief pilot's office, which would have had recliners and the blanket and pillow for her. So in fairness, let's say she probably has napped significantly. But my point still stands that your brain, when it's not had a good amount of sleep, cannot perform as well. Absolutely. And I think we all know that. Oh, we all know that. So as I said before... 
Colgan 3407 was a Bombardier Dash 8 Q400 being operated by Colgan Air from Newark Liberty to Buffalo, Niagara. It's a little shorty. It was scheduled to depart at at 7 p.m., but they finally pushed off the gate at 8.30 p.m. Okay. After getting taxi instructions, the first officer said to the captain, quote, I'm ready to be in the hotel. Oh, no. And the captain replied, I feel bad for you. Oh. I mean, she probably told him everything i mean that's kind of the casual conversation you would have if you're sitting in the cockpit for an hour and a half right they've been sitting around talking to each other since 7 p.m it's now 8 30 yawning when they push. <laughs> or, um, or asking for coffee or something how long is this flight supposed to be uh, an hour basically wow having to commute 24 hours to work to for take f- one hour flight <sighs> and she's probably working for 20 dollars an hour so she's probably making 20 dollars an hour to commute all the way from yeah anyway i it's, it's that hit, honestly I, oh. that, that space that it is mind blowing. She says, I'm ready to be in the hotel. And the captain replied, I feel bad for you. Mm-hmm. I feel bad for her. And she continues saying, this is one of those times that if I felt like this when I was at home, there's no way I would have come all the way out here. So, so she, it sounds like she realizes she is not fit to fly. So is she sick or is she just not fit to fly? We don't know yet. It sure sounds like she's calling herself out and saying, I'm not fit to fly. I'm really tired. I don't feel well. And I understand why she doesn't. I get it. And like I said a minute ago, like if we're saying that maybe she feels ill, it could be from lack of sleep. Yeah, totally. Then she says, if I call in sick now, I've got to put myself in a hotel until I feel better. Mm. We'll see how it feels flying. If the pressure's just too much, I could always call in tomorrow. At least I'm in a hotel on the company's buck. But we'll see. I'm pretty tough. I hate that. And that just like... Let's talk about the money. She she, she doesn't want to call in sick when she gets to her job because she, she doesn't have a crash pad and she can't no. afford a hotel. If she calls in sick, she's got to cover her own hotel because she's, she's in her And she's probably not going to get paid for that trip she if wouldn't. she's not in a union or has any sort of protection. She may get paid if she has like some sick time, but... She's, if she has some sick but time. But also she's going to spend more than she makes getting her lodging. Exactly. So what does she do though? She takes a flight so the company can pay for her hotel. I mean, that's the reality of it. Right. She feels sick and she says, if if I could, I would call in sick, but I'm going to fly to Buffalo because now I can get a, a hotel on the company's right. dollar. It's like, I, I've made it this far. I only have an hour and a half, which is a small amount compared to how far she's come. Question. Yes. I know for like flights that you do, first officer and the captain will switch every leg. And you'll sometimes have a conversation about what leg you'll do. Would this be a situation where the captain could take over and she could just kind of hang out? Absolutely. And then she gets a full night of sleep and flies the way back tomorrow? And in fact, I did a trip recently where I I don't know why I felt tired. I just felt really tired when I got to the airport. Not, you know, not fatigued, not anything like I'm sick. I was just like, I'm I'm tired. I'm just, I didn't get a good night's sleep. Mm -hmm. I'm not at the top of my game. I wasn't at 100%. And we had two legs that day. And I said to the captain, hey, why don't you fly both today? Because we had three total. I said, why don't you fly both today? And I'll fly the leg tomorrow. Yeah. And he said, sounds good to me. So he flew both legs that day. And I was tired. And I was right. I slept really well in the hotel. I got up. I felt fresh. So then I flew the the leg the next day but in this case the captain is going to fly the leg okay good and this is exactly why it's great to have two people in the cockpit 
as well. Well, that's, I mean, this is one of the reasons why, right? The captain responds with some advice about vitamin C and orange juice. It's not really important. B12. (laughs) What's important is she can't afford to call in sick. We've already covered that, right? Right. So they push back from the gate at 8.30. They sit on the ground for 45 minutes because traffic can be crazy in Newark. The flight departs around 9.15. It has 45 passengers, two flight attendants, two pilots on board. And we talked about the pilots. That's the aforementioned crew. Mm -hmm. The Dash 8 Q400 climbed to 16,000 feet. That's its cruising altitude. Okay. Uh, Turboprops cruise lower than jets. That's what I thought. Yep. And it cruised on its way to Buffalo. The first officer yawned a lot. Yeah. The captain and the first officer talked about pay their living situations, etc. They had um, other ca- casual conversation. She said that she was thankful her husband worked because she couldn't afford to live if her husband didn't work. They aren't totally affording to live anyway because they still live with their parents. I agree. And uh, she can't afford a proper lodging. No. They were ultimately assigned an approach to Buffalo, Niagara. The weather at the time was actually visual conditions under the clouds, but it's snowing. Mm. There had been ice reported in the clouds. This is not a big deal for airplanes. Airplanes get ice on them all the time. Yeah. We have de-ice equipment, keeps the ice off, keeps the airplane flying. But it's worth talking about that it's snowing and there's ice it's in the It's not clouds. perfect conditions. It's not perfect condition. So Colgan 3407 descended into the Buffalo area and prepared for the approach and they briefed it. We've already made the full flight. Yep. They got below 10,000 feet. And now below 10,000 feet, you're not supposed to talk about anything that isn't operationally necessary. It's called sterile cockpit. Oh. But they had casual I didn't know conversation that. That's anyway. That's interesting. They did? Yep. It happens sometimes. It's not a huge deal, but you wouldn't carry on a conversation typically under 10,000 feet. Right. And normally you don't talk at all except to call for the checklist, talk about the condition of the airport. Really, operational like, necessity is, yeah, it's called sterile cockpit. Yeah. But if like the guy next to you sneezes and you say, bless you, it's not the end of the world. No, it's fine. Absolutely fine. But so, if they ignored you, you shouldn't feel offended because they're really not supposed to. You got it. That's so interesting. I I can't believe I didn't know that. Well, now you know. I know. I can't wait to tell other people. (laughs) At about 10 minutes after 10, the first officer asked whether there had been ice accumulating on the windshield on the captain's side. And the captain said yes and asked her if she could see ice on her side. The first officer responded, lots of ice. Then the captain said, that's the most ice I've seen on the leading edges in a long time. The leading edge is the front edge of the wing. Mm-hmm. And we're in February, which is tends to be the worst for winter. Beginning of February, yeah. And we're going to in Buffalo. New, in New York, yes. I mean, which is even worse. Like the capital of snowfall. Ugh. About 10 seconds later, the captain and the first officer started a non-essential conversation. And the first officer said that she had flown more time in in icing conditions on her very first day alone at Colgan than she had ever seen before. Okay. So, so lots she of does not have experience in this situation. No. She also said that when other company first officers complained that they weren't upgrading to captain fast enough, she said that she was thinking, quote, she wouldn't mind going through a winter in the Northeast before upgrading because she'd never seen icing conditions. She'd never de-iced. She never experienced any of that. I think that's a very uh, reasonable goal. I mean, you have to have the experience before you can move up. 
Yeah. I mean, I know some people don't do th- do it that way, but it's probably more intelligent to like I was ready to join my union. I even had my letters and and my money and everything ready to go, but I hadn't touched a sewing machine for two years. So I took time to familiarize myself with that again. I felt a lot more confident when I did apply to the union. So I definitely think that's a smart decision. I don't think it's a smart decision to be talking about it when (laughs) you're supposed to be having just essential essential conversation. conversation. Agreed. So So she is smart. She's just having, they're just breaking the rules right, a, I a think, little bit. It's not. I don't think either of these people yeah. are bad people it, no. or dumb people or. No, this, in fairness, this does happen. Let's say you just go down and you cruise at 9,000 feet. This happens all the time when you go into the New York area, Chicago area. You're cruising for like 20 minutes. Right. Especially if like there's a delay on the runway and you have to circle or something. Right. And, and you And you're flying over your house. And you, you look down and you go, oh, I live down there. And they're like, oh, you want to jump out and get they'll be, home or right, whatever? Right. And, and they'll say, oh, yeah. Oh, I live um, down that way 100 miles or whatever. Yeah. You know, so that's like, it's, I, I don't want to beat up on this. I, it happens. I'm not going to, I'm not going to beleaguer this we're point. We're humans. Right. We're humans. So lots of ice on the airplane, right? Right. But let's talk about the Dash 8 for a second. The original design came from de Havilland, Canada. Mm-hmm. This airplane was built to handle all the ice that Canada could throw at it, which is a lot of ice. I know. I was about to say, like, they should have this under control. So they're not in a dire situation. The airplane is no. flying fine. What the crew needs to do, though, is they need to move up what's called the reference speed. So okay. that's the speed at which the airplane approaches the airport, the minimum speed for landing. Okay. okay? On the Didn't Dash realize 8. there was a minimum speed. Yeah, minimum speed for landing. And it's based on how heavy you are, it based on the conditions and how heavy you are. I would think there would be something you couldn't go over a maximum well, speed. Well, there definitely is that too. But I didn't there's think there would be a minimum speed. Well, there's a minimum speed because if the airplane gets too slow, it doesn't would fly you just anymore. Hit the ground. <laughs> it doesn't fly anymore. It's something called stall, where the wings stop oh. producing lift. So you want that sweet spot. But what the crew needs to do is they need to raise the Minimum landing speed by 20 knots. 20 knots is a significant number, and that's to compensate for the ice being heavy and the ice changing the shape of the wing a little bit. Not significantly, but it changes the shape of the wing a little bit, and the airplane is heavier. Right, because it has ice on it. Yeah, because remember that ice is water. Water is heavy. Water is heavy. Would they have to circle around, or can they just like press on the gas a little more i guess no that all they need to do is adjust the speed on their instruments okay and put a little more power in and they're good got it okay so they should have been targeting a faster speed but they never set the higher speed why we don't know now they were okay. running the di systems on the airplane and along with that on the dash 8 comes a message on the engine indicator that says to add speed however Add speed when you do the de-icing? When the de-ice switch is on, there's a little message that says... Add speed. Add speed. There's a way on the Dash 8 to make the little yellow message turn white. Okay? The yellow caution message that says add speed. Okay. You can make it turn white. It's a little switch to adjust the speed. Mm -hmm. And you put it into the adjust detent. Okay? Okay. Now, the airplane doesn't check whether you added the speed or not. It just Mm. looks at the position of the switch and says... I'm going to now change the warning message to just an advisory message. So it's like we haven't necessarily reached the speed yet, but you did something. You did it. Yep. The the airplane just goes, okay, you got it. Right. 
Why? Why? I don't know. So they were supposed to add speed because Correct. of the plane change because of the de-icing process. Correct. Without the extra speed to compensate for the weight and the shape of the wing, the aircraft could get dangerously slow and potentially get near the aerodynamic event that we call a stall. Yeah. Okay. A stall doesn't have to do with the engines. I just want to be clear. So let's talk about stalls for a second. Engines. When you think air. Right. When you think of a stall, you think of your car stalling or whatever, like the engine stopping. But that's not what it has to do. It has to do with airflow over the wings. Basically, when the angle of the nose gets high enough, Mm -hmm. the air won't flow smoothly over the wings. Mm. The aircraft won't make enough lift to keep the airplane flying. Because a stall can kind of also happen. I feel like you see that in movies sometimes where a plane just goes kind of straight up. Yeah. And then it kind of just stalls and falls out of the sky. Right, exactly. So think about the angle of the wing. As it increases, the air behind the wing eventually, it just gets blocked. Right. Basically, it gets blocked. Totally. And what keeps an airplane flying is the smooth laminar flow under the wing and over the wing. Does that make sense? Completely. Okay. So no questions <laughs> about the stall? <gasps> no, All I right, totally the understand the stall and I'm extremely nervous. So All they needed to go. do was add some speed to their reference speed. That's it. The 20 knots would have compensated for everything. Okay. So and they, they didn't even need to necessarily do it for no, the ice. And they didn't even really need to do a calculation. It just says, in icing conditions, when the de-ice equipment is on, add 20 knots. So that's it. Okay. All they had to do was add 20 knots. Now, the airplane tells them to do that with a little message, and you can cancel that message by moving the switch to the mm. adjust position. Which they did Which do. they did, but they didn't adjust the speed. I got it. Yeah. All caught up. So, Colgan 3407 was cleared for the approach, and the first officer yawned again. But the captain's flying. He is. The autopilot was on, and the autopilot is actually flying the airplane. Okay? Which happens a lot. We do. It's in all the time. We have bad it, weather, especially. Yeah, but we, this is normal. This is nothing. Nothing really to tell. I just want to say that the autopilot's on. Okay. The airplane was at 180 knots. That's a good speed, but it's approaching the beginning of the approach, and they need to slow down. At this point, Colgan 3407 was at 2,300 feet above the ground. Okay. It's high enough. Yeah. The captain called for flaps five. And the first Mm -hmm. officer put the flaps in. The airplane starts slowing down and the autopilot compensates by trimming the nose up a little bit. No big deal. All normal things. If the autopilot is on, would the autopilot adjust the speed if it was necessary? No, because this aircraft is not equipped with auto throttles. Okay. The captain pulled the power now all the way back to flight idle, which is the lowest power setting because he wants to slow down. He then calls for the gear to go down and the first officer... She lowers the landing gear. She confirms that the landing gear is down. All normal stuff. Right. The autopilot trims the nose up again, and the Dash 8 is slowing rapidly now because it has the gear hanging It's an idle, yeah. At that time, the onboard ice detection light comes on, and the captain calls for flaps 15. Okay. We'll talk about flaps in a second. I'm going to explain them to you. The first officer sets flaps 10, and it's not a mistake because the airplane needs to get to flaps 10 before she can set flaps 15. Okay? Right. It's just a sequence. Flaps 15 was the intended final flap setting for landing. And that's almost like the angle of the flap. That's the angle of the flap. Okay. So let me explain flaps. I'm going to skip all the aerodynamics because you don't really need to know it. All you we need to know. We learned it in sixth grade in science. Yeah. All you need to know is that flaps create more lift so the airplane can fly slower. Got it. But with lift comes drag and mm-hmm. you need a little more power. But we're in idle. For now, we're in idle because we're trying to slow down. And the 
landing gear is also creating drag. Definitely. But the captain, he doesn't put in more power. So the autopilot starts trimming the nose up again, trying to maintain 2,300 feet. Mm. The autopilot is trying to keep the airplane flying level. Sorry, I'm just thinking because you're like, you just explained what a stall is and it sounds like we're getting there. The two pilots ignore the ice detected message. And like I said, remember about the 20 knots, they just moved the switch to the position. Saying, saying we heard oh, you, I basically. added it. Yeah, I added the 20 knots, but they never added it. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly fair to say they ignored it because they saw it, moved the switch, right. and didn't make the adjustment. It's like they did step A and they didn't do step B. Correct. And both steps would be critical. They just canceled the message, but yeah. they didn't change anything. So with the deployment of the flaps down to 10 and the gear, like you said, the airplane is slowing more quickly now the power is still at flight idle. Mm -hmm. The autopilot continues to trim the nose up to try to maintain its altitude. You see where this is going? Yes, I'm making a face. (laughs) Yeah, you are. Uh... Now, at 131 knots, the stick shaker activated. What is that? The stick shaker is a precursor to the stall. It warns you that the stall is coming. It's not a stall. It's a little vibrating motor. We're losing aerodynamics that it's a vibrating motor that is connected to the yoke Mm -hmm. that literally turns on and shakes the yoke that says hey buddy wake up if you've ever driven a car with lane departure warning yes yes it moves the steering wheel totally that's the same concept as a stick shaker however in this case the autopilot goes you're approaching a stall here's your shaker and by the way i'm not flying you anymore so the autopilot (gasps) turns off a big warning or a warning a big like red message and a big like click click autopilot's Autopilot's off off. yes take control of the plane because the airplane is about to to stall (laughs) but i'm really glad and i think this is also i've done a lot of stories with you that been older yeah and there aren't there aren't all those warnings. warnings yeah exactly so it's really nice to see this yes and hear this that this all of this warning is going on it's unfortunate whatever is about to happen well, just remember <laughs> that the airplane is very capable of handling ice like stall training is very important yes. to pilot training yeah. we do it all the time so what the captain should have done let's talk about the corrective action the corrective action at this point would have been to advance the throttles to the maximum thrust mm-hmm Allow the nose to dip down just a little bit to get the airplane flying again, to get Mm -hmm. air over the wings, stabilize the airplane, Mm -hmm. and then climb out of it. Got it. Pilots train. We do this all day and night. It's vastly important in the the training environment. It is. It's one of the biggest things. All planes are a little bit different in their actual procedures. Some you... You know, you apply power and still the speed brakes, mm-hmm. so, you know, that kind of stuff. But the concept is the same. Lower the nose, add power, get the wing flying again, because all wings work the same. Get the air back around that's the it. wing. Get your speed back. Got it. That's it. But that's not what the captain did in this case. But why not? Uh, he did add power. Okay. But he only added 75% of what was available to him. Which you're trained to use all available power. Full power. And in the case of this aircraft... That maximum power is called M-top. We'll talk mm-hmm. about that in a little bit. And it should be very easy to get to maximum power. I mean, in just I feel like in the movies, the, you just push it. a lever, right? You push the two levers forward all the way. That's there you go. That's all he has to do. And but that he only takes... pushed them to get, pushed them forward 
75%. See, I failed and my then, first driver's test because I didn't press. They test you on like an emergency brake and I pressed a little too gently. I feel like he would have failed that stall test. Yeah, he would have. Had this been in the simulator, he would have failed. But then he doesn't lower the nose. He pulls back on the controls on the control wheel. What? He pulls back on the controls. So what you need to do is put in the power and lower the nose to make it fly more. Yeah. What he does is he puts in ha- three quarters of the power available to him and pulls back on the control column. This seems, wouldn't that make it worse? Absolutely. Remember, the airplane's not stalled at this point. It's just no. warning you that it's going to now stall. Now he's basically sh- shooting it into one. Correct. It's, he's going to send it into a full stall and ultimately he's going to make things worse and things to get worse. The airplane pitched <sighs> nosed up because he pulled because so he hard. Pull- yeah. And it rolls. And it had power behind that pull. Just a little bit of power. Not not a lot, but enough to kind of give him a, a ramp Right. Up. Well, he ramps the nose up, the left wing stalls, and the left wing drops to a 45 degree angle. Oh, God. So now the airplane is tipping to the left 45 degrees. But as the left wing fell, the nose fell momentarily, and the airplane started flying again. <gasps> Yeah, because if you're at an angle, you're able to get the air back over you. Right, you're going to kind of slice down through the horizon, and it's going to point the nose down. And now if you can level the wings, you're almost at the stall recovery. Yeah. Okay. But the captain continues to pull back on the controls. He pitches back up, and he stalls the right wing this time, and the airplane banks hard to the right, reaching past vertical (sighs) and banking 105 degrees right wing down oh my god anything more than 90 degrees is the beginning of being upside down yeah so he's banked more than 90 degrees to the right whenever you talk about like the movement of a plane i think about how it would be to a be a passenger. passenger yes this would be terrifying as a passenger i mean i don't know how this is going to end but like thankfully hopefully these people because they were on their approach had their seatbelt on yeah they probably had their seatbelt and their fastened. stuff put away i don't know how I'm sure you're about to tell me if that did or did not matter ultimately at the end, but that would be so terrifying. And that probably happened really fast. Really fast. So the first officer, without saying anything, she reaches down to the flap lever and she sets the flaps to zero. Why? Essentially removing any extra lift that they were providing, which was a significant amount. But we needed the lift. We need the lift. But she pulls the flaps up. When she pulls the flaps up, the stick pusher activates. It starts by shaking and saying, hey, hey, you're stalling. When you get to the stall, the stick pushes forward. Because that's what it wants you to do. It's telling you this is the only way that you're going to get the airplane flying again. So you don't like be a weird captain that randomly decides to pull up on it for some reason. Right. It's like, oh, if you forgot, do this actually. Then the first officer says, I raised the flaps. Hmm. The captain overpowers the stick pusher, pulls the nose up again. Why? Banks back hard to the to the left, and then the right wing stalls, and then back to the left. So now we're like, we're just, I mean, it's just floundering around. It's just left, right, left, right. It sounds like he just has no idea what he's doing. He has no idea what he's doing, and she pulls the flaps up. Why? I don't know. She just pulls them up. Maybe she's in shock. And think, she's like... I think she feels powerless because she's sitting there and she... She doesn't have control doesn't of the have stick. control of the aircraft. She doesn't know what to do. I think she's just panicking. The airplane is banking <sighs> left, banking right, banking left. The nose is going up and down. The captain is what overpowering is the stick pusher doing? and the shaker is going off the entire time. This reminds me of like <sighs> when I 
don't know how to ride a bike and I, I'm just kind of trying to get my balance. So I'm like putting the handle this way and then pushing it this way and you're just kind of weaving around. That's really what he's doing. So the Dash 8 Q400 has now slowed to just 100 knots and it's fully in a deep stall. It banks back and forth several times like we talked about. Mm -hmm. The captain continues to pull. The airplane is trying to help. Literally, like... the. We gave you the warning and this is what you're supposed to do. And he's just like... He's just... Not, he's in his own what world. What is he doing? I'm so confused. The first officer then asks if she should bring the gear up. Hmm. Because it's creating Because it's creating drag. The captain says, gear up. Fuck. Then the nose of the Dash 8 pitches 25 degrees nose down, enters a bank of over 100 degrees to the right. <gasps> They're nearly at like a spiral. Yeah. And Down. the Dash 8 begins to fall out of the sky. Just 27 seconds after the autopilot had turned itself off, Colgan 3407 impacted a single family home. A post-fire crash ensued. 45 passengers, four crew members, and one of the four occupants in the home were killed. Mm. The other three suffered serious injury. That's everyone. It's fully fatal. And one on the ground. Oh my gosh. Because it crashed into a house. Do you want to see a picture? 27 seconds is so fast. It probably felt like an eternity, though. Oh, my gosh. Oh, the only recognizable thing is the tail and like one engine. You can't even tell there was a house there. Oh Three my people gosh. were able to get out of the house before it fully burned down. Yeah, it's just like blackness where the crash was. You can't discern anything besides that tail. I so, don't even understand how this could have happened. You get what happened. Yes. But let's talk about what should have happened. As I said before, what should have happened is once the stick shaker turned on and the autopilot turned off, the captain should have applied full power, mm -hmm. lowered the nose slightly, and flown the Dash 8 out of the situation. I wouldn't exactly call a recovery from a stick shaker a non-event, but it didn't have to end this way. No. But let's talk about what he did. Yes, because so what did I was so concerned about the first officer, and it sounds like she had nothing to do with this. She didn't have nothing to do with it, nearly. But I'm gonna I, we're gonna address that too in a little bit. That's okay. an actually kind of an interesting discussion, and we're getting there. It's yeah, a com I feel it's like a complex crash with a lot yeah. of moving parts. I feel like I normally once I hear your episodes where there's crashes, I feel like I can pinpoint like everything that went wrong like oh they had alcohol oh they were depressed right. oh right this this and this they did this wrong they did that wrong this, this is there was bad stuff like red flags and then there was this awful event but for some reason they don't feel tied together in my head that's because a lot of the things that led up to this crash were not actually tied to the crash okay so what did happen so it's ultimately what happened was the captain mishandled the airspeed mm -hmm. and the power, which led to a stick shaker, ultimately a stall. He mishandled everything. And his improper action and his repeated wrong actions mm -hmm. were made worse by the first officer sucking up the flaps. Right. But then he continued to take the wrong action and it led to a crash. I know that the flaps didn't help, but ultimately he was flying the plane. Remember, he said he set that 75% power. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to my friend Lauren, and she was a captain on the Dash 8, which is the type we're talking about. Okay, she, cool. She told me that not only was there more power available, but there was a lot more power available. Yeah. The power 
that he put in was 75% of cruise power. Oh. Or what's called rated thrust. But you can okay. go way faster. Well, the Dash 8 will provide what's called M-top, which is max takeoff performance, something like that. Yeah. I, 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 didn't, I missed what she said. Right. It's like the power that you would put in if necessary, but you would never like fly at that power because right. it's not fuel it's efficient. Ten, well, and the engines can only take it for 10 minutes. Oh, okay. But it's 10% over takeoff power. So and he had lots of power. Of power lots of power and not only that lauren told me that and i have experience in turboprops so i can attest to this unlike a jet where when you apply the power you have to wait for a second mm-hmm. okay to get that power not only does the engine have to spool up but the jet has to push the wing forward to get more speed over it oh okay. well in a turboprop when you apply power you get the power instantly because the core of the engine is smaller. So it okay. spins up faster, Got which it. turns the prop faster. Mister. Now, the prop wash creates sort of like an artificial wind because mm, you're going to mm-hmm. take that prop and you're going to blow the wind that the prop yep. makes over the wing. So you will get instant power and you will get a boost of lift. That could have happened here. Yes. If he had put it all away. Yes. So that makes sense to you. Yes. So additionally, she told me that this airplane has a ridiculous amount of power when it's pushed to its M top. So, the, so yeah, so, so he much definitely so, could have gotten out of it. So much so that in severe wind shear events that were considered unrecoverable and unsurvivable in other aircraft, the Dash Eight climbed out safely and easily. Hell yeah. So the Dash Eight is a really powerful airplane that's designed for this. Designed to put a lot of lift, a lot of power to carry a lot of ice. There's no reason this should have happened. So it was built to handle ice. Like I said, it had a ton of extra power. The Dash 8 is fucking bulletproof and designed by the Canadians to handle Canada. Yeah. The airplane was not the issue. No, it doesn't sound like it was the issue. We got all the warnings. The warnings were in your face. They were loud. Yep. They were obvious. We were trained for sure on how to handle the event. Right. And I know that we said the captain didn't have many hours in this plane specifically, but it sounds like the technique to get out of a potential stall is always, always, always going to be pushing the the stick the same way and not the way that he pushed it. He pulled it, right? He pulled it. There's no logical reason why he would think that pulling would be the solution for this even so, if this wasn't a plane he flew that much so what do we do next we look at their training records yeah when we look into the first officer it's worth noting that she didn't have any training issues on the dash eight she had failed a flight instructor test a few years before but i wouldn't call that unusual i mean she was a few years ago she was she what was, 20 21 she, and she had two probably 250 hours and that's the time to not pass it, a lot of people fail their initial cfi check ride and a lot yeah. of faa examiners consider it a rite of passage to fail to the first time f- mm-hmm. so i'm not going to hold that against her no although because she you're did, learning right you're learning although she did make a critical mistake i'm not sure that it mattered that much all the pilots that she ever trained with says she was an excellent pilot. Mm-hmm. She was very inexperienced. She did seem dedicated. She was dedicated. She made a critical mistake. Possibly due to lack of experience, su- probably. Experience or, or and or sufficient rest. Right. She was inexperienced, but so was the captain. 
So let's talk about him. Right. He's only been a pilot for six years, right? Well, he's only been a professional pilot for six years. Okay. So speaking of the captain, his training record is less than stellar. Yippee. Way back in 1991, he failed the initial test for his instrument rating. Um, Is that That's worse just in a little plane. the failure of the CFI? first officer? No. So it's like everyone fails at the beginning, kind of. Sure, you bit. could have a failure in the beginning. But so maybe we don't hold that one too much against him. But no, we don't. If he but continues on this track of failure, maybe. It sets a precedent. In 2002, he failed his commercial pilot test for single engine airplanes. He got more training and then he passed. Okay. And then in 2004, he failed his commercial license for multi-engine airplanes. Mm -hmm. He was retrained and he passed. Mm. In 2005, while flying at Colgan in the Saab 340, he failed a check ride as first officer. He was retrained. And then passed. And then he passed. In okay. 2006, he failed the same check ride that he had failed the previous year. Mm. But you guessed it. Trained him again. And he, and passed. he passed. Okay. This is interesting. Then in 2007, during his upgrade training in the Saab 340, he failed his check ride. He retrained and he passed. How many more of these are we having? <laughs> <sighs> That's it. He okay. did not have any issues during training in the Dash 8. Okay. Probably because the Dash 8 is an easier airplane to fly than the Saab. Okay. And more forgiving. But he hadn't been in it for very long. But going all the way back to 1991, he failed consistently. It sounds like maybe it being a pilot was not the path he should have been on. I agree with that. And, and he stuck to it whether or not that was the case. Yeah. Because like, <sighs> I'm just like someone really needs to be it. honest with you at, at one point. At some point and at, say you're probably not cut out for that. That's Colgan's fault. How many times are we going to let somebody be mediocre and... Who is in charge of... And you be know, a captain. Who, who's in charge of 75 people's lives. Exactly. He just doesn't seem like he's going to get it. It seems like it shouldn't have been his path that he chose, but he was very passionate about it. I'm going to say I admire his tenacity but very little else. Right. It's also like, sorry. It's, no, it's also okay. a very selfish mindset to have of I am good enough to put these people's hands in my lives when you're really not. It kind of reminds me of the Dr. Death's podcast story oh, I agree. that that yeah that came that came to mind as well even in the proceedings for his trial they were weren't really sure if he understood what he was doing the whole time i i listened to if the whole he, dr death series yeah, i don't think he did he and thought I, genuinely right, he thought that he was, he was doing a good job that's the that's actually what i think happened with this captain as well I think that he failed, but each time he justified it in his, he came up with his own justification, his own reason. Oh, I just messed up this. Maybe no I problem. had a bad. Oh, I just messed up that. Captain. And I could go into what he, what portions he failed. Mm -hmm. It's not really that important. Mm -hmm. He had a consistent history of failure. Finding something to blame is definitely a very like narcissistic way of thinking about it because you're not the problem. It's someone else's fault. Right. It's somebody else's fault. It's like yeah. I'm a good pilot, but I don't know what. Happened. This the check the check airman was a dick yeah, or whatever was a dick or the the captain kind of like, got me boxed mm -hmm. me into a corner and you know he whatever. didn't like my politics so he failed me or whatever right absolutely there's there's a million justifications and it is very narcissistic to continue also people who are bad at things sometimes don't recognize it 
sometimes when you ask someone who's mm-hmm. bad at something, are you bad at this? And they'll say, I'm the best at this. Right. Because they don't, here's the problem. Like people who think they can sing. They, and isn't they, that hilarious? They don't have the tools to evaluate how bad they are. Right. It's called Dunning-Kruger effect. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's an we actual thing. It's totally a thing. Hmm. We can I'm read about it later. have to look that up. What's changed? Well, the FAA made a whole lot of recommendations based on this crash, most of which mm. were related to aircraft's ice stall systems and crew fatigue. Yeah. Some were about training records, as you can imagine. Yes. However, the NTSB explicitly came out and said that crew fatigue was not included in the probable cause of this accident. Hmm. It's important to, to know that because a lot of people tend to blame the first officer. We're going to talk about this in a minute. I was concerned about her way more at the beginning, but like we said and like we know, she was not in charge of flying. She's not in charge. But something big did happen. The FAA standard changed as a result of this accident and other data they've collected. It changed for everybody in the whole industry. Yeah. And it's important to understand the change in the recovery from a stall criteria. Does that make sense? Okay, so what changed? Okay. So prior and during this crash, the standard for a stall was minimum loss of altitude while maintaining control of the aircraft. Okay. Essentially, that's called powering out of it. Got you it. would use aircraft power more than pitch. Which should not it's a, be how correct. it goes. It's a slow way. It is possible. It is a slow way to get the aircraft flying again. Mm-hmm. And if done correctly, you may only lose 50 feet or, or no altitude at all. Oh, nice. But it's difficult. Okay. That standard was the previous standard. It changed to the standard we talked about, which is lower the nose, except some altitude loss. Yeah. And the combination of added power and gravity will get the wings flying again more quickly than the pilot should recover. So this method is both easier. It makes more sense. Aircraft control is not compromised. So this was not how they trained people before this event. Correct. And this is 2010. I got it. Because you said that the plane helped push it does. the nose forward. Nose forward. But he you was weren't trained. trained to push the nose forward? You were trained to push the nose forward just enough to maintain altitude as close as you could. So there's still no real reason he should have been pulling back at all. No reason. Okay. No reason. It does affect the accident. He was trained on the old standard. Okay. But... Lots of people flew the old standard right. and it wasn't, it was critical, but it wasn't like a but, huge mm-hmm. deal. But to help but now, prevent it in the future, yes. they've just made it a lot easier. A lot easier. Well, they looked at a lot of data and what the data said was minimum loss of altitude is okay if you're really close to the ground, but most stalls do not happen really close to the ground. And no. in the case of this crash, it happened at 2,300 feet above the ground. Right. So- he had plenty of air below him mm-hmm. to add that full power, mm-hmm. lower the nose a little bit. He probably could have lost 100 feet and recovered had he taken the correct action. Even in the old standard, had he applied full power, the Dash 8 probably would have flown out even with his controls being pulled back. Wow. The critical thing we have to remember here is full he power. Full, do full power. Now. That's so frustrating. Neither of them did full power. She cannot get a pass here. Could she, she but could, she doesn't have access to the stick, but she has access to the speed. Well, she has she, those two levers are sitting right next to her left hand. Mm. So he's got both his hands on the control wheel. She could reach over and, and instead speed. of messing with the flaps, she could have 
pushed those throttles until they stopped. Got it. So she's not without blame. However, she's inexperienced. And, and I just, there's something to be said about shock and reaction time yes, for and, somebody who is inexperienced and young and hasn't had a chance to right. and remember, go through this experience. She doesn't before. want to do something that the captain hasn't asked her to do either. She hasn't, right, she that's how the cockpit goes. Right, she knows that she can operate the gear lever mm-hmm. and the flap lever, and that's what she does. And what she should mm-hmm. have done is pushed the thrust levers all the way forward. Right. Now, I say what she should have done, but... He Clearly, should have done it in the first place. It should have been done long before it would have ever come right. to her mind. Right. So we're, we're kind of touching on this, so I'm just going to go into this. I want to address that when I was looking into this, I found such a high level of sexism. I am not shocked. A ridiculous level of sexism. Mm-hmm. A lot of sources solely blame the female FO. Even though she was not flying. Even though she was not flying. And, of course, being the internet, some people were openly sexist and said that basically she didn't belong in the cockpit. She should have been at home in the kitchen. Bring those people here right now. I'll punch them in the fucking face. But to hide their blatant sexism, some claim that she was fatigued and that was the cause. Okay. She wasn't We said the NTSB specifically the excluded plane. that. Sorry. But, sh- but the NTSB specifically said that was not the cause. So let's forget about that. The bigger reason, though that these internet macho apes say that she caused the crashes that she pulled the flaps up and that if she hadn't, the airplane wouldn't have crashed. That is wrong. Straight wrong, and I'm going to explain why. Yes, she pulled the flaps up. She shouldn't have. You know what the captain shouldn't have done is pull the nose back. Or failed to put the power all the way in. Yeah, Let's talk about that maybe before we like give her a hard time. After really looking at this crash and looking into it, ultimately, I don't think the flaps mattered that much. I think pulling up the flaps made the airplane crash faster. But it was already Well on its way. Based on the captain's actions, I believe that the captain would have never recovered. mm -hmm. The crash was inevitable at that Mm -hmm. point. Also- We had already dipped- Two different directions. By the time she touched anything. I mean, we're already yeah. we've already gone upside down. We're yeah. there's so much that's already happened. Right. Do you know exactly at what time? Because you said the event was twenty seven seconds. Do you know when she did that in that time? Roughly fifteen seconds in. So we were already well on our way. We we're all well on our way. But I but I would just want to be clear. The fact that she was a female had absolutely no bearing no. on the outcome of this crash. Okay. I mean, I feel like I shouldn't have to say that in 2021, but you do because according to what I read, I absolutely do. It was do. all over the internet. So let's get this straight. She was a pilot. She messed up. Her actions did contribute to this horrible accident, but she was not the cause. The NTSB said she was not the cause. And once again, she was not flying the plane. Right. The so captain if- was flying the plane. So for all my listeners out there who get engaged in this argument with their sexist uncle, I want to say that he can fuck off. No. And you can tell him I said so. <laughs> I um, You can co-sign me on that fuck off as well because I wholeheartedly agree. There could have been nobody in the seat next to him and I feel like the same exact thing would have happened. Absolutely. If she wasn't there... He would have crashed if she the airplane. had fallen asleep, it yes. would have been the same. You know, that's an excellent point. I didn't think about that, but you're right. If she had fallen asleep, the outcome would have been exactly Ex- the same. It might have been a 30 second same. crash instead of a 20 second, 27 second crash. Right. Yeah. He might have fought it for 40 seconds, like you said, but 
he was ultimately never going to take the correct he didn't, the right cor- mm-hmm. corrective action we saw that he, he just ha- did it repeatedly again yeah, and again yeah. and again he did the same thing out of control of the plane yep absolutely and she couldn't get control of the plane right so what was she gonna do in fact he was so out of control of the airplane he overpowered the stick shaker which pushes the aircraft nose forward with between 50 and 75 pounds of pressure wow. so he's really yanking back He's holding that thing That's back hard. Crazy. I I wonder if there's any. It's not like a hint. It's not like a little like oh bump right. bump. That thing will it's, yank the control out almost, of your hand mm-hmm. if you're not holding on to it. It will pull it out of your hand. And if you want to overpower it, we're talking about doing curls with a heavy bar. It almost feels intentional. He because didn't do we it don't have. There's no reason he should be pulling on the stick. This st- the plane's literally telling him not to pull on the stick, trying to make him not pull on the stick. Right. Why is he still pulling this on the stick? Because of his terrible training record. Because He's he did the wrong pilot. thing. He's not a good pilot. He had a t- he had a demonstrated terrible training record. Right. He's still relatively inexperienced. I mean, 3,300 hours is not very much. Right. And you can take a test once, fail it, and be able to do that skill again because you just took the test. Absolutely. And pass it. And that information could be gone again from your brain. It's a good thing that you bring that up. So let me talk to you about retraining during events. If you need to retrain during an event, sometimes they'll discontinue the check ride. Mm-hmm. They'll call everything else complete. They'll retrain you on specifically what you failed. Mm -hmm. And then you'll demonstrate that you can do specifically what you were just retrained on. That's fresh in your brain. Yes. So this isn't even like a whole test again. No. This is like you failed a segment. You failed. Here's a little tutoring session. This is what you failed on the segment. Here's a tutoring session. Oh, now show us you can do it. Oh, now you pass. Right. That is, there is something inherently wrong with the way we train mm-hmm. when we're talking about that that that's wrong yes because i don't think that's an actual learning situation 100 percent, not a, an actual learning situation therefore that's, did that's he monkey really learn it exactly this is kind of in the industry referred to as the buffalo crash okay it was pretty significant as yeah. far as what came out of it and it's hard to hear. It is very hard to hear. I had to take a minute, a break while we were looking at the photo. I'm just glad it wasn't full. I hate it for the families and the victims, obviously. But that airplane, terrible. that airplane held 76 people. There were 45 on board. So at least there's that because yeah. they would have all died as well. Yes. I hate the slandering of the first officer because she is also a victim in this. Oh, totally. This was yes. not her fault. And, and I just she could have she had a whole life ahead of her. She was twenty four. And I just ran into the sexism. I was like, oh, it just made me sick to my stomach when I when I started reading. Oh, she belonged she belonged in back home in Seattle in the kitchen and stuff like that. She was dedicated. Yes, she did something wrong and I I would acknowledge that many times, but the fact that she was a female had nothing to do with it. Zero. No to do with it and to your point i think it's worth saying that had she been sleeping she would have still been dead exactly i know that, that's a hard one to hear if she had been just deadheading and sitting in the cabin the yeah. same thing would have same happened. thing would have happened so do you want to hear my sources yes so in this case i use although used, i really have to pee go ahead almost done. <laughs> so in this case i used only the following sources the official ntsb report and okay. i used that primarily yeah the official cockpit transcript. And to find the NTSB report and the transcript, I used Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. I read the summary on Wikipedia and Mm -hmm. then I donated $10 to Wikipedia and you should do the same. 
Absolutely. That's the thing about these free things like podcasts, for example, we're going to circle back to the Patreon if you love free entertainment and you have the money to give like these people are like the people on Wikipedia, you doing your podcast like we it's put a nice lot of to show I'm not going to say all I'm not going to say all podcasters, but I will say the ones that are well researched. We put a lot of effort into it. So mm-hmm. anyway, I donated to Wikipedia for this episode. So yeah, anyway. and maybe soon people can donate to you if they love and love this podcast and want it to keep going and that'd be great. Keep its amazing quality because I know that's I a lot, a of, lot work. of effort into this. Yeah, yeah, and it's one of my favorite podcasts and. Thank you so much for having me back on. This was a little more intense of a story than I've had in a while, but, but I know that you was very it. interesting. Yeah. And I feel like I learned a lot more than I have in some other episodes. Yeah, this was very complex. This this episode was very complex. This was not straightforward. And pretty modern. Very modern, yeah. I mean, that was ten that was eleven years ago. I feel now. like the stuff we normally hear is from the eighties and stuff. Well, I've got more of the eighties coming. And okay. the 90s and the 60s and the 40s. And we're just going to start slowly covering it all. And like I said, about once a month okay. now because uh, I'm doing my master's and I'm busy and I'm working and I'm doing the best I can. So anyway, thanks for having me on. Thanks for having you on <laughs> your podcast. We are in my living room. That's so true. I will take that. You're welcome. <laughs>